That quote, Corey Ten Boom, she was a woman who knew both trouble and peace. Can you think of a time in your life when you felt overwhelmed or fearful about the future? One of those moments for me was when it was time to take our firstborn home from the hospital. She had spent the first five months of her life in the NICU when she was born. And the whole time she was there, she was surrounded by these incredible doctors and nurses. And my husband, Dave, and I, we would come every day and we would participate in her care and we would help. But it was always under the supervision of a nurse or a doctor or a therapist. So if there was ever a problem, help was literally two feet away from us. And then the day came when they, when they said, well, she's well enough to leave the NICU. Are you ready to go home? And in one sense, yes, we were ready. We had been waiting and praying for that day for months. And yet, we were also scared and anxious. So even with all of the training that we had received, we were leaving the security of the doctors and the nurses who had been with us and helping us for all of these months. And all these emotions in me started to bubble up. I felt insecure. Who was I? Who was I to take care of this fragile little person? And I felt helpless. What do I do if, if something goes wrong and I don't, I don't know what to do? I felt fearful. Am I going to mess up my daughter? Do you know what it was that got us through those first scary weeks of being on our own? It was the words of others. I had a good friend who spoke into those insecurities saying, Megan, you are the mom that God has given to this little girl. And a therapist entered into my helplessness. I'll be there on Monday. Just call me if you need anything. And my mom spoke truth into my fears. Megan, look how far she's come. God's going to keep growing her. My situation hadn't changed. I still had this fragile little person, and I was full of questions. And yet, those words offered to me by other people gave me a sense of peace that outweighed my fears. And in the section that we're going to be reading this morning, Jesus' disciples, they have troubled hearts. They are losing their source of security. Jesus has walked with them and lived with them for three years, and now he's leaving. He's leaving. What's going to become of them? And into their insecurity and their helplessness and their fears, Jesus speaks. I put his words on the top of your outline. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. How could Jesus say that? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. Doesn't he know what they're going to face when he leaves? And the answer is yes. He does know. In fact, he knows better than they know. But he also knows this. Their reasons for peace far outweighed their reasons for fear. Perhaps you too 
know what it's like to feel anxious, troubled, or fearful, and your heart longs for peace. And those words that Jesus Christ said to his disciples in that room 2,000 years ago, he says and offers to you too. He offers reasons for peace that outweigh your reasons for fear. As we read our passage this morning, I want you to pay attention to a couple words, just like you did last night with Shannon's passage. I want you to circle every time you see the word love, in, with, and to. This is grammar class, in, with, and to, and the word love. John 14, starting at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while... And the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, Well, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I, and now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So let's put ourselves back into the context of this passage. These are Jesus's last words in his conversation with his disciples before he leaves. These are his final preparations. And he doesn't offer a detailed checklist. Not every question is going to get answered. But yet woven throughout this passage, Jesus gives reasons for peace. We're going to consider three of them. He reaffirms his promise. He guarantees help, and he assures them of victory. Let's consider the first one. Jesus reaffirms his promise. Look at verse 15 with me. If you love me, you will obey 
my commands. That refrain, if you circle the word love, you know that refrain shows up several times throughout our passage. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Now, that hardly feels like a promise. In fact, it almost sounds more like a test or a threat. Can't you just picture a teenage girl saying to her mom, Mom, if you really loved me, you would buy that dress for me. But Jesus isn't testing his disciples. He's not threatening his disciples. He's highlighting for them a spiritual reality. Each time Jesus connects love for him with obedience to his words. If you love, you'll obey. If you love, you'll keep. There's a natural connection between those two things, between love and obedience. One always leads to the other. We have a garden out in our backyard, and every time around this year, we plant vegetable seeds. And every year, we have the same fear. Is anything gonna grow? And so I'll walk out to the garden every morning and I'll stare at the soil and it's dark and bare. And I think, it's all dead. Nothing is growing. And my husband and I will say, well, we, we planted the seeds, right? You planted them. Okay, I watered them. Okay, okay, they'll grow. That's, what's, that's what seeds do. And sure enough, within two weeks, little green sprouts start to emerge. Carrot seeds become carrots. And squash seeds become squash. And I did not study botany in college, but I do know seeds are supposed to grow. And they did. So consider that statement again. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. That word will is a word of certainty. This isn't a threat. This is a promise of what will happen in the life of a believer. Seeds of love for Jesus will blossom into the fruit of obedience. Now, when Jesus uses that word commandments or words, he's not talking about just, you know, a couple rules that his disciples have to follow. Listen to this verse in Deuteronomy. These commandments are not meaningless words to you. They are your life. They're your life. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you love me, your life will show it. How you think, how you feel, how you act, how you react, what you cherish, believe, what you know. According to Jesus, all of these things flow from what you love. Consider these words that Jesus spoke in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My sheep hear my voice. These aren't words of peace or of, of a threat. These are words of peace. These disciples, they have loved and followed the voice of their shepherd. This is evidence that they belong to him. No one can take them away. Shannon said it last night. They're part of the family. I do want to address the elephant in the room. 
that when Jesus spoke these words 2,000 years ago, all 11 disciples that heard these words were in fact disciples. They belonged to Jesus. This was meant to encourage their hearts. But not everyone who reads these words today is a disciple of Jesus. There is another group of people in this passage. Look at verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Jesus, he encourages those who have love for him, but he also exposes those who do not. All throughout his ministry, Jesus was always, he was peeling back the surface of people's verbal and outward confessions. And he was always exposing what was in their hearts. What did they love? And this passage presses us to evaluate, how do I relate to Jesus's commands? Does my life reflect an increasing alignment with God's words? Or do I bristle at the idea of being under God's authority? If you want to know what you love, consider your fruit. Consider how you live. Now, I am not saying that if you love and obey enough, you earn your way to heaven. No, obedience to God's commands, it will never save you, but it can reveal you. Just like my garden out back, if nothing ever grows, I should ask the question, did we ever plant seeds in the first place? But we have to get the order right. We have to get the order right. Salvation comes through God's love being poured into our hearts. He is the one that plants the seeds of love and makes them take root. That same man who wrote this book of John, he also wrote these words later in the Bible. We love because he first loved us. God pours his love into you first. And only then, only then can you respond in love and obedience to him. Now you'll notice after each main outline point this morning, I have included a question for you to consider. And for this particular point, the question is this, where is your confidence? If you are a disciple of Jesus, this promise, it should fill you with confidence. I thought of two ways. There are more. Talk about them in your small group. This promise provides comfort and peace and confidence for those who belong to Jesus Christ. Here's the first thing I thought of. We have confidence in our failures. Confidence in our failures. Just before this passage, Jesus tells two different men that they are going to fail. Judas and Peter. Yet, the failure itself is not what makes or breaks these two men. It's what they love. It's what they love. Judas, he will go on to betray Jesus, but the love of God was never in him. And more and more, Judas moves away from Jesus into the direction of what his heart actually loved, which was the world. Peter would also fail. He would go on to deny Jesus three times. And yet his love for Jesus, it drove him to repentance. Jesus sought refuge and mercy from Christ. He didn't run away. He didn't hide. 
Peter had the confidence in Jesus' love for him and it propelled him towards Jesus, not away. And you know what happened as a result? Peter's failure and his repentance, it led to deeper love, deeper and fuller obedience for the rest of his life. How do you interact with your own failure? Is your confidence in yourself? If it is, failure will always undo you. It will always rattle you. You will spend your life trying to prove to yourself that you are enough. But if your confidence is that God has loved you first, well then, that confidence, that drives you to repent. It drives you to deeper love and it empowers your obedience. Failure becomes an opportunity to love Jesus through honest repentance. And here's the second implication. We have confidence in our direction. In the coming days, once Jesus leaves, perhaps these disciples, they will, they will likely feel pretty overwhelmed. And what do we do? What do we do? Or maybe, maybe they'll feel aimless. What's even the point? Jesus is gone. Does any of this matter anymore? And this statement that Jesus says, it gives them such clarity. If you love me, you will obey my commands. That is their priority. That is their purpose. Love and obedience. Sisters, you are never aimless or purposeless in life. The Christian's compass points in a singular direction. Fuller love and fuller obedience. That is your first calling in life. And these two callings of love and obedience, they are beautifully interconnected with one another. They grow together. As your love for God grows, your life changes and you obey. And as you take steps of faithful obedience, your love for God deepens. You have been set apart on a trajectory of increasing love and devotion to your Savior. What a promise. Seniors, do you feel overwhelmed by not knowing what's coming in a few months? What will life be like when you graduate? Where are you going to go to church? What job will you have? Will you make enough money? What about all that debt? And you just want to get it right. Well, here's the good news. You don't have to know. You do not need to have it figured out. You only need to know what direction you're facing. So Jesus reaffirms his promises. That's, that's the first way that he holds out peace to these troubled disciples. Here's the second thread that we see in this section. Jesus guarantees help. So Jesus calls them to this life of love and obedience, but he never calls them to do it on their own. Look at verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. This promised helper empowers them in their calling. Verse 26 tells us that this helper is the Holy Spirit, but that probably doesn't mean too much to the disciples. And if I were in their shoes, I'd probably be thinking, I'd kind of rather have Jesus stay. 
This kind of feels like a lame consolation prize. Who is this helper anyway? Perhaps the disciples still felt abandoned because listen to how Jesus reassures them in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. These disciples, they will say goodbye, but they will not be left alone. They are not orphans, and the Holy Spirit is no consolation prize. He is a gift. He's a gift. We're going to consider three aspects of this gift of the Holy Spirit and how it provides this supernatural help both to the disciples and to us. Here's the first aspect, the intimate presence of God. The intimate presence of God. Look down at verse 17. Verse 17, this promised Holy Spirit is coming to dwell with you and be in you. But then Jesus says in other places, verse 20, I am in the Father and you are in me and I in you. Verse 21, I will manifest myself to him. Verse 23, my Father will love him and we will come to him. So wait, wait, so who's, who is coming to dwell is this the helper? Is it Jesus? Is it the Father? Yes. The answer is yes. It can feel as if Jesus is using these words, names interchangeably, and it's because they are one. The Holy Spirit is not this mysterious, ominous force. It is the very spirit of the living God, that same spirit who dwelt in Christ, and he now comes to dwell in his disciples. That's why Jesus can say, I'm leaving, and yet I will be in you. Now remember all those prepositional phrases that I asked you to circle at the beginning? With you, in you, and to you. If you take a look at those, I counted 13 times in this little section. With you, in you, to you. Whenever Jesus speaks of the relationship between God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and these disciples, he uses one of these three phrases, with you, in you, and to you. These are words of nearness. This is the position of the helper, with you, in you, to you. The Holy Spirit is not a soccer coach yelling instructions from the sideline. He's not an influencer giving you advice through TikTok. The helper draws near. In fact, the Greek word used for helper in verse 16 literally means one called alongside. The disciples have been walking next to Jesus for the last three years, but now the Holy Spirit dwells in them, in them. And look at what happens when the Holy Spirit draws near. Verse 21, he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him. God draws near and love overflows. Through the Holy Spirit, the disciples have the intimate, loving presence of God dwelling in their very being. My four kids, they write cards to me every Mother's Day to tell me what they appreciate most about me. It's not my baking. It's not, it's always the same, every child, every year. I love it when you snuggle with me. 
Children long for nearness. It's how my kids know that I love them. And that's what we see here. We see God drawing near and his love spilling out. Not wrath, not criticism, love. Perhaps for some of you, the idea of nearness sounds terrifying. Nearness means hurt. And I want you to know that the God of the universe drawing near to you in love, it is the very thing for which you were made. No matter what you have experienced from the nearness or lack of nearness of other people, God comes near in love. And this nearness, it empowers your obedience. I do not like to run. And if you ever hear me say, I'm going out for a run, that's code for I'm going to run down my driveway to the end of the block and then I'll probably stop and walk because why am I doing this to myself? This is terrible. But I have a friend who is a far better runner than me. And the few times that I've run with her, words of encouragement and help overflow from her. She's right next to me, running alongside of me, saying, you can do it, Megan. I'm right here with you. We're in this together. You've got this. One step, one lap at a time. And don't get me wrong, I still think running is terrible. But when she is right next to me, it helps me take the next step. Her loving nearness, it empowers my running. And in a far greater way, the loving nearness of the Holy Spirit empowers you in your obedience. He fills you to take, with courage to take the next step. Do you live in that reality? Or perhaps, like me, you live like an orphan. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans, yet sometimes I live like one anyway. In moments of trouble, I can quickly forget that the Holy Spirit lives in me. I'm tempted to view God as distant and cold and unconcerned. In moments of temptation, I think I'm on my own to fight this, and so like my running, I give up, I give in. But Jesus has promised, you are not an orphan. The God of all love draws close. That's the first gift of this helper, the intimate presence of God. Here's the second, the divine instruction of God. The Holy Spirit instructs us, instructs us. Look at what Jesus says in verse 26. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I have said to you. I'm going to repeat that. He'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. These disciples, years later, with no help from a phone, will vividly remember all of the words, actions, and conversations during Jesus' years of ministry. This is the Holy Spirit bringing to remembrance all the words of Christ to them. Why? 
Why, is it so that they can sit around a campfire and share in all the memories they had together? No, no, it's so that they could write them down. The very fact that we are reading this upper room discourse this morning between Jesus and his disciples, that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work. But the Holy Spirit did more than just enable them to remember the words of Jesus Christ. That's the other part of verse 29. It says he teaches them all things. And you all know there is a difference between remembering something and understanding something. You can write down every word your professor says and have no clue what he's talking about. Or perhaps you've had the experience as a preteen of memorizing all of these song lyrics and singing them with all your heart. And then years later, you look back and say, oh, that's what I was singing. I had no idea. (laughs) Now you understand. There's remembering and there's understanding. The Holy Spirit enables both. The disciples will not only remember Jesus' words to write them down, but the Holy Spirit will instruct them so that their minds grasp the spiritual realities of those words. These men, as they speak with Jesus, they're still pretty confused. They still have a lot of questions. In just a few short weeks, these same men will be preaching incredible spirit-filled sermons with power and knowledge. How is that possible? It is the Holy Spirit instructing and teaching them. He illuminates dark minds. He teaches the whole counsel of God's word. That's why verse 17 calls him the spirit of truth. Perhaps this verse doesn't quite apply to us the same way. No one in this room was also in that room, audibly hearing Jesus's voice. And yet... The Holy Spirit teaches us. He brings to our remembrance the written word of the Bible. When you open up your Bible, even if you are groggy and half asleep, or when you listen to God's word being faithfully taught, when you sing the words of Scripture, something supernatural is taking place. It's not just you with a book and a pen and a journal. The living God meets you in his word and he is quietly at work teaching you, instructing you, reminding you, convicting you, applying his words, Jesus' words to your soul. Why? So that you can love and obey. Sisters, those few minutes a day that you grab time to sit in God's word before you head out to class or before you fall asleep at night, being instructed by the Holy Spirit, they are perhaps the most significant moments of your day. Perhaps you've had the experience of the Bible coming alive to you or being able to recall a verse in in your moment of need. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing to remembrance the words of Christ. His help, it is in real time. It is perfectly suited to your story in exactly the way that you need to be met. Do you live 
in that reality. Or perhaps like me, you are tempted to live like an orphan. An orphan says, I have no help. I'm, I'm on my own. Sometimes when I'm in pain, my husband Dave will suggest that I take medicine. In fact, he will go so far as to get it out of the cabinet and put it on the counter in full view. Mine for the taking. And maybe an hour later, I'll complain about, about pain and, and he'll say, well, did you take the medicine that I gave you? And there it is, sitting on the counter. I, I, I forgot. Or maybe I just stubbornly want to prove that I can do this without the help of medicine. I struggle, I struggle to live like an orphan. Perhaps you do too. And it's not just with medicine. I live like an orphan when I despair about my problems and feel like it's all up to me to fix things. I live like an orphan when I don't call out to God for help or ask others for help. I live like an orphan when I search Google or books to calm my anxieties or fears, but my Bible sits unopened. Sister, you have the guidance and instruction of God's revealed words and the Holy Spirit illuminating those words to you. This is peace. Here's the final gift of the Holy Spirit. The homemaking work of God. Homemaking, it's a word that we don't use very often, but homemaking is the work of transforming a residence into an actual home. And it happens in our passage. Look down at verse 23. We, Jesus is talking about he and the Father, we will come to him and make our home with him. The Holy Spirit does not come as an overnight guest. He plants himself. There's a difference between an overnight guest and an owner. An overnight guest, they keep their things in their suitcase. They don't rain the fridge. They ask permission before using things. But when it's your home, you put your feet up. You put pictures in the wall. You put brownies in the oven. You can even knock out a wall and add an addition. It is your home and you get to make it how you want. The Holy Spirit makes his home in every follower of God. And as he dwells in you, he remakes you into a home fit for the God of the universe to live in. We read last night in John 14, when Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many rooms and Jesus is going to prepare a place for you, for them. Jesus is getting a home ready for his disciples and now the Holy Spirit is making them ready for that home. The Holy Spirit, yes, he draws near and he offers intimacy. The Holy Spirit, yes, instructs them with God's word. But what's the end goal of both of those things? It is your transformation. It's transformation. Do you live in that reality? 
Or, perhaps like me, you can easily slip into living like an orphan. Orphans live from moment to moment. They have no future, nothing to live for. But for you who belong to Christ, your future, it is settled. It is guaranteed. Do you struggle with insecurity? Perhaps feeling like, oh, I have little to offer. I have little to offer, God or others. The Holy Spirit is remaking you. Do you ever wrestle in your suffering, wondering, why is God doing and why does it hurt so much? It's because the Holy Spirit is remaking you. Do you ever get discouraged by the difficulty of obedience and wonder, oh, it is so hard to follow Jesus. Why is it so costly? It's because the Holy Spirit is remaking you. And if you had a glimpse of those architectural drawings of what he is doing inside of you, you'd be blown away. You'd be blown away by how glorious that home will be. And perhaps it was that truth that empowered these disciples whom Jesus spoke to to face all sorts of persecution, even death. It's because their future was certain. Jesus is preparing a home for them and the Holy Spirit is preparing them for that home. And in the same way, you in your love and obedience to Christ, you can face persecution. You can take costly steps of obedience and you can endure suffering because you have that promise. You are being remade into a home fit for God. The Holy Spirit is probably the least talked about member of the Trinity. He is mysterious and he is quiet, yet he is powerfully at work in the lives of each disciple of Jesus. He empowers you by drawing near. He instructs you and he remakes you. Sister, you are not an orphan. Jesus assures his disciples of one more thing in, his, in our passage. One more reason why they can have peace in the midst of their troubles and it's because victory is coming. Victory is coming. That's the last point in your outline, the assurance of victory. One of the things that I love doing with my kids is reading books to them that I have already read before and loved. They don't know the storyline. It's unfolding for them. But for me, reading it through a second time is so fun. I already know there's a happy ending. So I get to enjoy all of that subtle foreshadowing that the author weaves into the story that I missed the first time. And these disciples, in a similar way, they are in the midst of an unfolding story. They have no idea what's coming ahead, but Jesus already knows. He knows the happy ending, and he does some foreshadowing. He assures them victory is coming. Look down at verse 29. I told you all before it takes place so that when it does, you may believe. Jesus fully expects that they will look back on this conversation one day and say, that's what he meant. And their belief, their faith, it'll be strengthened. So what exactly does he foreshadow and how does that offer us peace? First, he foreshadows the who. 
the who. Jesus tells us exactly who the enemy is. Verse 30, the ruler of this world is coming. That phrase, ruler of this world, it is Satan. The enemy is Satan. And as the night progresses, the disciples will have to wrestle with that question. Who is Jesus fighting against? Who are we fighting against? Is it Judas who betrays him? Is it the religious leaders who accuse him? The crowds who demand his crucifixion? The Roman soldiers who nail him to the cross? But Jesus says this battle, it was always a spiritual one. He is fighting the ruler of darkness, Satan himself. And when the disciples see Jesus' crucified body, they may feel as if the enemy has won. But note the foreshadowing in verse 30. He, Satan, has no claim on me. Jesus will be victorious. Jesus has told us who our greatest enemy is. It is not the anti-Christian professor that gives you unfair grades on your assignments. It's not the girl who talks about you behind your back. And it's not your difficult roommate or your overbearing boss or the person that betrayed you. Your greatest enemy is Satan. And Jesus is the one who has fought him and has been victorious. He has no claim on Jesus. Jesus also foreshadows the what, the what. He tells us what's going to happen. Look what he says in verse 28. I'm going away. We do know that part. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. Now, why would Jesus expect rejoicing from his disciples? Well, it's because Jesus knows what's coming next. There's a step in between his talking to them now, and his leaving. And it's his death. The only way that Jesus goes back to the Father is if he passes through death and into life. Jesus foreshadows here the resurrection. And when Jesus returns to the Father, he leaves this world with his mission accomplished. Salvation has been won. He doesn't just foreshadow his own resurrection either. He foreshadows theirs. Look at verse 19. Because I live, you also live. Death will not have the final word. Not for him, not for them, and not for you. Listen to how it says, or what it says in 1 Corinthians. Death is swallowed up in victory. In your unfolding story, you are given a glimpse of how it all will end. And if resurrection life is coming for you too, it means that you have more to live for than just the here and now. Every little death you die every costly obedience that you choose, God will resurrect it into something beautiful and glorious and eternal. Jesus has defeated death. Finally, Jesus foreshadows the how. 
How? How will this victorious ending be secured? Do you remember that refrain of, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments? He was speaking to the disciples, but now he will speak of himself. It shows up again in verse 31. I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. For 33 years, Jesus perfectly loved and perfectly obeyed his Father. He is about to embark on the climax of that perfect love and perfect obedience. He will endure the cross. And yet, instead of enjoying the nearness of God, instead of receiving the help of God, Jesus will cry out, God, why have you forsaken me? God will turn his back and Jesus will become the orphan so that those who trust in him are welcomed as sons and daughters in the family. This, friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. Jesus is more than an inspiring example to follow. Jesus lived, died, and rose in your place. You can't love perfectly. You can't obey perfectly. He did. He did. Jesus Christ has already secured the victory through his love and obedience. A few years ago, we, uh, our family was outside when we came across a little snake in our yard. And Dave killed it right away. But my daughter, who was six years old in the time, ran back into the house and she grabbed the biggest shovel that she could hold and carried it out and starts whacking the thing. Like she is going at it. Keep in mind, it's already dead. It is already dead. But there she is, courageously battling a dead snake. We too battle a dead snake. This is your hope. The battle you fight, Jesus already won it for you. Victory is assured. Sister, no matter what you face this morning, no matter what fears plague you, what unknowns lie before you, what costly obedience is demanded from you, if you are in Christ, then your reasons for peace far outweigh your reasons for trouble. You belong. You belong. Jesus has promised it. You have help. Jesus guarantees it. And you will see victory because Jesus has accomplished it. Let's pray. God, I do praise you and thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. God, I do pray for my sisters that they would know the nearness, the love, the power, the purposes of the Spirit that dwells inside of them. Would you give us peace for our anxious hearts? 
Lord, we praise you for the victory that you have won. Would it fill us with confidence? Confidence in your work, not in our own, as we seek to love and obey you. And Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would open blind eyes and illuminate darkened minds this morning. Lord, if there are women here that do not know the love of God yet, I do pray, would you supernaturally plant seeds of love and life into the hearts of these women and bring them into your family. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.